Hello and welcome to The Pathway. My name is Tim Deeks, and in this podcast, we dive deep into the lives of interesting characters from a wide range of backgrounds. No matter if the guest is a leader in business, sport, media, or politics, everyone has a pathway through life. And it is my ambition that through each guest's unique story, you'll be able to take something away to put into action on your own path. So let's start walking. Will Anderson is simply as good as it gets in this part of the world when it comes to stand-up comedy. You might know Will as the host of ABC's most popular show, The Gruen, or from his various podcasts. But Will has won the People's Choice Award for a record six times at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. He's sold more tickets than any other act. I'm super grateful he's accepted my invitation to discuss his pathway. Welcome, Will. Welcome, my great pleasure to be here this morning, mate. Thank you very much for having me on. What was your first job, Will? Um, my first ever job. Well, technically, my first ever job was milking cows on the dairy farmer's son, and so you grow up on the farm milking cows. And it was an actual job, not just the unpaid labour of you know <laughs> have children for unpaid labour uh, model that some of the dairy farms work on. But my parents were very big into the idea of teaching me about finances and earning your own money and the value of working for your own money. So from about the age of whatever. It, the technical age was that they could start paying you on the farm. I went on the salary and, you know, I'd get sort of the equivalent of pocket money for uh, milking the cows and doing some chores around the farm. And that gave me an opportunity to save some money in my high school years. And the plan was always uh, in our family that you had to save enough money to buy your first car by the time you got your license. So from age sort of 14 to 15 to age 17 to 18, you had to make sure you were putting away enough money for whatever your first vehicle might be. And you must have loved that experience because we were just talking off air that you, you moved back to more country life. Yeah, back in the country now. Not the country that I came from, yeah. I will say that. My brother's gone back to run the dairy farm and both my brother and my parents are happy with that. He was the right choice. He's the practical one. He's the one who's good with uh, working with his hands. But I must admit that uh, you know we're living on a little bit of land now and back in the country where my partner is from. And yeah, I was out this morning down in our paddock collecting dry firewood from under the trees down there where it didn't rain last night and liking it back up the hill to put on the wood stove tonight when it gets a little bit cold. So yeah, definitely a bit of a return to country life and country values, which I'm particularly loving, I would say. I've always considered myself it's funny, when I grew up on the farm, I couldn't wait to leave. You know, I was one of those kids. They say in life, you got to know what you're running from or what you're running to. And I was definitely a kid who was running from more than I was running to at that stage of my life. I, I just wanted a different life than the life that I'd had growing up in isolation in the country. And so I ran away for, what, 30 years nearly. And now I guess that I've uh, gone back to the country. When was the moment that you realised that comedy was not just something that you loved doing, but something that was going to be your career? Uh, you know what? Never really is the is the actual answer. Uh, it's funny; it just happened very incidentally. You know, uh, that was one of the thoughts that really got me through the pandemic because when you know all the work went away, comedy was one of the first things that went, and it makes sense. Um, it's a non-essential industry. It turns out when you need medicine that laughter isn't the best medicine. <laughs> Actual medicine is the best medicine. All the scientists in the world are at the moment uh, around in labs and uh, trying to come up with the vaccine for the coronavirus. They haven't gathered all the best comedians in the world coming up with the perfect routine <laughs> to cure the coronavirus. So 
Uh, when I first started doing comedy, you know, it really was running away to join the circus. But I've been lucky enough in the 25-plus years that I've been doing it in Australia. It's gone from being, you know, an industry where there were a few people who had jobs in the industry, but it was mostly people who just were passionate about the industry, uh, to something that is, you know, a job now. I mean, I, I, I have a journalism degree, and I left journalism to go into stand-up comedy. But if you were a kid today and you had abilities in journalism or abilities in stand-up comedy, you'd never encourage anyone to go into journalism. That's a bad career choice yeah. versus you know, the opportunities that might be open to you as a stand-up comedian. So it became something that I did for a job, and it became a job in my lifetime of doing it. But I didn't start doing it because I thought it would be a job. And so when it went away, you know, the Melbourne Comedy Festival was the first thing to, to go, and then all my work that I was going to be doing for the year went, and you know, probably about 90% of the income that I was going to make for the year went. And those can be very confronting things, you know. For the first time in quarter of a century, I was an unemployed stand-up comedian again. But one of the thoughts that really reassured me during that time was that I hadn't started comedy because I thought it was a practical and reliable career. I hadn't started comedy because I thought that it was something that would be able to pay my bills and buy me a car and buy me a house and let me travel all over the world. They weren't the reasons that I got into comedy, they had just been things that had been uh, very happy accidents that had happened along the way of me doing comedy. So the idea that it went back to being something that suddenly was unreliable, I, I think I dealt with it because it wasn't the reason that I started it in the first place. You love it. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. I mean, well, man, I have four podcasts and TOEFOP's been going for 10 years next month and, um, well, July the 2nd. So, um, yeah, depending on people when, when people hear this, but July the 2nd is 10 years of us doing TOEFOP and TOEFOP's been going, um, you know, nearly 300 episodes since 2013. And I think I might have started Willosophy in 2014. And then we started the footy podcast you know, three or four years ago. It must have been 2016. It was the year the Bulldogs won the premiership. So that's been going for four years and they're all essentially free and things that we don't really make any money out of. We make a little bit of money, which is enough to just put back into the business itself, you know, pay the people who do our art and our editing and those sort of things. But, you know, in the profit and loss sheet at the end of the year, there's barely any money left over and if we do have a little bit left over it's like oh we should get a website you know <laughs> we should do some of those things that we can do with this money so I guess the fact that you know those things have continued during these times even though they're not you know financially rewarding yeah I guess what, what does that mean it means that you love doing it regardless of whether there's a financial imperative or not is this the longest time without stand-up comedy um, it's interesting it will be it definitely will be. I don't know if it is at the moment because I've had some, I, I, you know, I've had some breaks in between things over the years, and I've always thought that breaks aren't too bad. There are some comedians that have that idea that you have to constantly be working. But I've done a new show, an original new show, at least one, some years two, at the Melbourne Comedy Festival for, you know, quarter of a century. So. You know, there is a relentlessness to producing that quantity of work, but in between it, you've still got to say, well, I've got to have some time off. I just can't constantly be doing this because if I'm constantly doing it, the only ideas that I'm going to have, new ideas that I'm going to have, are they going to be forward momentum new ideas. So they're going to be on the path that I'm already running on. You know, if you're, you know, a marathon runner and you just keep running a marathon, well, you're just going to keep running at that pace and running a marathon. Whereas 
if you have an opportunity to step away for a while and go, well, I'm an athletic guy, maybe I could go and do something else with my athletic ability, uh, you know. So I think the downtime is always the time where if comedy and being on stage and producing content is emptying the bucket of ideas, you've got to have some time to fill up that bucket as well. So mm-hmm. I've tried to embrace this time where, you know, I've not been allowed to do what it is that I do for a living um, as a time to, you know, fill that bucket and maybe fill another bucket, fill another bucket after that so that when I do have an opportunity to speak to people again and do comedy and then, you know, hopefully the ingredients that you're working with are going to be even richer than the ones you had before. Did you have a plan B if comedy didn't work out? Was it the fun? Well, I guess I guess my plan B was going back to journalism, I suppose. Like, I mean, I have a journalism degree. I worked as a journalist. So for a while, at least in the first sort of five or so years, I guess the plan was go back to journalism. And then, you know, after 10 years, I really, it was so far from me being a journalist that, you know, it, it made absolutely no sense at that point. I've been a journalist for, you know, studied journalism and been a journalist for only three years of my life. And, you know... 10 years into comedy, I'd been a comedian for 10 years of my life. So the idea that I would go back to journalism seemed a bit strange even then. And then you go on 15, 20 years from there and there's, well, not a lot of jobs in journalism. (laughs) Journalism as an industry doesn't even exist anymore, let alone if I was still qualified to do it. So now there's no plan B. Uh, I I don't, you know, I'm at the point... Well, you don't want to go back to the the Australian Financial Review... (laughs) Like, I mean, I can't imagine that I could. I just yeah. don't think that I would have the capacity or the ability or the qualifications to ever do something like that again. And I can't go back to the farm. You know, my brother's taken over the farm and it's not really what I would be good at. So during times like this, I just have to reimagine what it is that I can do with the particular set of skills that I I now have. But I've been doing comedy long enough that it's ruined me for being able to do anything else. Your first gig was at the ESPY? Is that correct? That's right. Well, tell, yeah, us about, how, tell us about that first experience. Okay, so, so people will know the Gershwin Room if you've ever watched Rock Wiz or any of the, you know, if you've ever been to the ESPY in, uh, in Melbourne, Australia, uh, St Kilda, one of the most iconic rock music and uh, pub venues in Australia. And they used to have a, a room that to this day, I wish that there was somewhere else that had a similar sort of room. We were very lucky because... Yes, you had two nights. So there was a Sunday afternoon and there was a Tuesday night. So Tuesday night is there. What we'd recognise these days as a regular comedy night, like a, an experienced MC, you know, a, a proper headliner off the tally or the radio or, you know, a star of the local stand-up scene at the very least, Anthony Baldwin or Judas Lucy or Greg Fleet or, you know, whoever it would have been at, at those times headlining the room. And then a bunch of, you know, comedians that were on the way up. But the graduation process for that was Sunday afternoon. So Sunday afternoon at the SB, they would have had about eight to 10 new comedians, each doing five minutes. It was over two brackets. It started at three o'clock in the afternoon. There was a break in the middle. And I think it was only five bucks to get in. And so what would happen is that a lot of people would kind of go to it as a, a Sunday recovery session. You know, you've had a big <laughs> Saturday night, roll down to the beach in the morning, have a swim, roll into the SB in the afternoon, have a beer and listen to some comedy. Have a laugh. You could wander in and out, go to the bar, that sort of, you know, vibe of it. So it was a brilliant room because it would always have over 100 people in it, often up to 200 people there on a Sunday afternoon, which really is unheard of for a brand new comedy room. But the way that it was run was so good because you'd have a bunch of brand new comedians, but you'd also have some people who 
had been doing, you know, that new comedy circuit but hadn't graduated to the Tuesday night yet. And then they would have a professional MC. So that would be, for my first gig, it was Steve Bedwell, who was a big radio star. You know, Marty Sheagold hosted, you know, the gig I did, the third gig that I did there. And, uh, um, you know, names that people would remember. And then they would have a, you know, pretty experienced headliner at the end of the day just to bring it all home. But mostly it was new comedians. So my first experience was really good. Like the set went great. And I've got a bit of a theory that it often does, to be honest. Like, you know, people always expect that they will hear stories about people's first gigs being terrible. But, and there are people whose first gigs were definitely yeah. terrible. But um, sometimes if your first gig was terrible enough, you know, you don't stick around long enough to be able to tell the story of your first gig because it puts you off. You know, so often what you hear is people who had really good first gigs and that's what gave them the bug in the first place. But I have a bit of a theory behind it. One is the generosity of the audience. You know, if you're introduced to someone doing your first show, generally, and particularly the audience of the SB, were very up for just saying, well, we want to be supportive of this. We want to be encouraging of this. You know, this is the vibe of what we're doing. But secondly, you, ha- you don't know anything yet. And comedy at its best, I think, comes from a place of honesty. That's why when I do my improv shows, you know, people say, oh, do you plan anything? I said, no, 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 the trick is to not plan anything. The trick is to be in the moment. Because in the moment, you know, the way your face reacts, the way your body reacts becomes part of the comedy show. You know, you can say as much with an expression or a look away or a crumple over as you can say with words as long as you're in the moment. And I think, you know, a lot of the time in first gigs, you're in the moment because you don't know anything yet. But of course, once you do a good show, then you think you know everything. And traditionally, then you have a terrible second gig. Instead of going on stage with no expectation and just excitement, you go on stage with an already set level of expectation. And then as the second gig isn't hitting those heights of expectation, you start to you know, get inside your head and judge yourself and all those things. So often what we do is we spend, they say in comedy often you find your voice around the seven year mark. You know, it's not a, it's not a, you know, it's not the same for everybody, but that's a seven to 10 years is really where you start to find what your comedic voice is. And I often think that you have a bit of an understanding of your comedic voice in the first gig. And then you spend the first five to seven thinking that you know how to, like, you know, learning how to do it. And in learning how to do it, you actually get worse at it and then eventually you get to a point where you can sort of get rid of all that stuff again and get back to what your original voice was or you have enough skills to be able to regularly reproduce what your original voice is. For a lot of people, when they're not having a great day at their job, they can just kind of hide away, go back into the uh, you know the cool room or and nobody notices. But it's a lot harder when you're a comedian. People might have paid for like a babysitter and they expect a big performance. Do you have any methods or habits to break that feeling when you're having an off day? Uh, okay. Well, firstly, look, yeah, absolutely. You know, my bad day at work ruins other people's day. <laughs> 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 it's not great. It's not a fun feeling. It's like, you know, on the, the, the opposite of that, my good days at work hopefully make other people's days more fun and, you know, happier. And, you know, I know that from the conversations I get, Often when somebody's going through a tough time, comedy can be an incredibly powerful and helpful thing. So, And most of the time, that's how it goes. So most of the time, it's not something that I really have to confront, you know, in this day and age. You know, the idea that 
it's gone terribly. But of course, every comedian, you know, this is the great level of comedians is that, you know, you could talk to Jerry Seinfeld or Chris Rock and I'll have a story from the last 12 months or last 24 months about some, you know, gig that they did that went terribly. That's just the nature of what it is that we do. People think, people ask me all the time, they say, you know, what if you're having a, a crappy time at home and you have to go in on the radio and be funny? Or what if you, yeah. you've had a really shocking day? And I, I watched one of my very good friends in comedy. Um, I wonder if he would be happy. Uh, well, a, a well-known Australian name. Uh, yeah. His father died during the Australian, uh, during the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And I went to his show that night because um, he, he cancelled all the rest of his shows after that, but he still had to do the one that night. And, uh, or he chose to do the one that night. And I went and sat in the wings just to kind of give him some support and everything. And he did a brilliant show. And the reason that he did a brilliant show, and I absolutely agree with this, is that sometimes it can be a great relief that hour while you're on stage when you're going through something terrible. Because while you're at work, you can only think about being at work. And that first time the audience laughs, you that's quite infectious to you. So you can suddenly, once you're doing the show, you can start to be feeling good. So it can actually transform your mood or, or at the very least, give you something else to concentrate on for that 70 or 80 minutes. Barry Humphreys, and look, it's a, you know, it gets more controversial to quote Barry Humphreys as the years <laughs> yeah, go on, but yeah. Barry Humphreys was once asked about uh, Dame Edna and what it felt like to go out in front of 3,000 people. And he said something which I loved, which was, ah, alone at last. And what I think he really meant by that was that all the questions and queries and worries and issues of the day go away and all you have to concentrate on in that moment is your conversations you're having with the audience. When it's not going well and there you get heckled, how do you handle that? I mean, I'm not encouraging heckling, but I mean, in the same way as somebody who's a black belt in karate doesn't encourage bar fights, the only reason I don't encourage it is, look, I mean, I'm pretty confident that I can beat you. (laughs) I just don't want to have to do it. I think it's an unfair fight. I always feel a bit sorry for the person who walks into one of my shows and thinks that they will come off best in a heckling deal. I mean, the truth is that it's just a completely unfair fight. You know, to quote Star Wars, I'm standing on the hill. I've got the advantage, you know. Um, I'm on a stage. I have a microphone. All the lights are pointed at me. Everybody in the audience has paid fifty dollars to come and see my show. That you're suddenly trying to, uh, you know, ruin. Um, everyone's always already against you. Everyone is already not on your side. And also, I do this for a living. Like unless you're a professional heckler, I've got much more experience of you know tearing someone apart than you do. So. The idea that that power dynamic is, you know, in my favour is actually the the reason I often don't like it is I know that I could absolutely destroy somebody, but I don't take any particular joy in that. Sometimes it needs to be done for the sake of the show. But if a heckler is in a good spirit, I just tend to roll with it and have some fun with it and, you know, quiet them down and get back on with the show. Uh, If a show is going badly in the middle of it, if I, I'll give you a better example because yeah. that was probably not the, the right one, but I will give you a better example. Say I'm in, uh, you know, five minutes into the show and I've just done, you know, normally in the first five minutes, you've got at least one joke that you consider to be a real tester joke in that, like, you know, on a, on a good night, it will, you know, get a round of applause and even on a bad night, it's going to get a pretty good reaction. If I hit that joke and you get a terrible reaction, like, you know, the air goes out of the room or 
people really don't, you know, um, respond to it in the way that you imagine that they would respond to it, then suddenly the problem can be you get inside your own head. Mm. And the minute that I start thinking, oh, they didn't really laugh at that one. They're not going to like this next bit that's actually much more confronting or harder work than, than that one was. That's my easy joke for everybody to enjoy. The minute I'm thinking that, I'm not concentrating on what's coming out of my mouth. So suddenly I'm halfway into the next joke or the next routine. And I've been saying the words because my brain can say those words. But if I'm not thinking about the words, you know, I talked to you before about that idea of being in the moment, how often it's the facial expression or the, you know, the way that the body moves or the way that the ideas come out that are much more important to the the jokes and the words themselves. The minute I'm thinking about something else, none of that stuff is happening naturally. I'm not in the joke. I'm not in the moment. So really, I guess it has a mindfulness parallel. If I am having a bad show, the only thing that I can possibly do is try to get back into the moment, be right in the moment, be in the joke, be in the moment, um, try to you know deliver what it is that I'm trying to deliver in the best capacity that I can deliver it. Now, sometimes for me, you know, and this is you know, a little bit of a high-risk strategy, but I, I quite often will acknowledge or lean into discomfort. So if, you know, a joke didn't work, I might sometimes, you know, then stop the show down and explain to the audience that, look, to be honest, that's the one that uh, normally gets a really big reaction. I'm a little worried (laughs) that we're five minutes in and that did not get a big reaction. Is there something that we need to, you know, there might be a circuit breaker where I decide, you know what, I'm just going to lean into it. I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to see if I can deal with this now so that, you know, I don't, have to deal with this for the next 55 minutes of the show. I think often calling the uncomfortable can be a really powerful thing. I um, When I do my improv shows, because uh, they seem terrifying to people, you know, mm. like I walk out on stage without any idea about what I'm going to talk about and I just create a show, you know, for 70 to 90 minutes off the top of my head Incredible. by just talking to the audience. And to some people that feels very confronting. But I said... The thing that I always think is it's all the show. So when I'm doing those shows, if I, you know, I'm riffing. So if I riff something and it it runs out of legs or I dig myself a hole, I always think in my mind, great. Because now the audience gets to see how I dig myself out of the hole. And I'm confident that if I dig for long enough, you know, I won't, you know, maybe I'll dig it a bit deeper first, but I'm also confident that I'll eventually find a way out of this hole. And how I find the way out of this hole will be as entertaining as how I found myself here in the first place. When you have to create a new hour, so you've, you've finished one of your, your shows and you've been working on it for the, for the whole year, what is day one? What is that process? Day There are so many day ones and, yeah. and that's probably the, the hardest bit of it is that, the actual writing of it, you know, your average show is uh, like, again, it would be my average show, I will say, rather than, you know, speak for everybody because it will be really different for different performers. But, and it's even really different for me, depending on the density of, you know, what it is that I'm working with. But like, we lost a, uh, sorry, We're Legal, which was my show about being arrested, which was about 80 or 90 minutes, depending on the night. About 11,500 words. An average show is easy have to do 60 minutes. I think my Adelaide Fringe show, which had to be a tight 60 minutes, was, you know, probably around sort of six and a half to seven and a half thousand words. So if I needed to, 
I could write that this week. I could write, I reckon I could write six and a half thousand words of something that looked like a comedy festival show this week. But it wouldn't necessarily be good because it's all the day ones when you're starting to think about what it is that you're going to talk about that are important to me. It's not the actual, I'm, I'm confident that I can do the practical thing of then, you know, ordering a story or putting jokes in or structuring a routine or putting together a show. I mean, I've been doing it for 25 years. Sure. That's the bit I know how to do, but it's the original inspiration that is the bit that separates the, you know, a good show from a great show. And it's the ingredients that you're working with. I mean, to use a cooking analogy, I suppose that, you know, you could make the same uh, cake, but if you use a well, let's not take cake, something that uses fresh ingredients. So you can make the same salad, um, but if you use fresh local ingredients, then you maybe use something that you haven't used before in the salad. You put some pomegranate in instead of what you would traditionally put in there, then that's going to make it, you know, a more exciting execution than you just doing it with, you know, some imported tomatoes that, uh, you know, taste the same all year round or whatever, the, you know, I've made a mess of the analogy. It's, it's, it's what the ingredients is that you start with that are important. Mm. And that's the hardest bit. The bit where I walk around for months, you know, just in my head going, what's the show going to be about? What am I going to talk about? What is it that I am most interested in? And for me, that's like a process that probably happens over, it's probably happening over a period of years. Often, subconsciously? Often happens, yeah. And, but yeah. then even consciously, in that I'll suddenly realize that, you know, I've been reading a lot of articles about internet security, let's say, or I've been reading a lot of articles about blah, 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 or I've been consuming a lot of, you know, one particular thing. And you think, oh, I've been thinking about this a lot. Now, that might not end up in a show for, you know, two or three years. So that part of it can literally, and sometimes for five years or for 10 years, there's stories from my youth that I've told at a dinner party that haven't made it into shows for for years because there wasn't the right time for it. I didn't have the right angle on it. I didn't have the right perspective, but then something else happened and it changed and it became something that was then relevant to my work. So that period is nonstop. That one's probably been, you know, probably started in 1995 and, you know, is still still going now is, is probably the truth of it. But the actual writing process for me, it takes somewhere between three and six months normally. So about this time of the year, I'm really seriously wanting to at least start putting something on paper. One element of comedy and, and your comedy imitate that I love, it's it's a little bit edgy. We've seen in recent weeks, you know, Faulty Towers and all of Chris Lee's productions be removed from different services. How does comedy adapt in this world of political correctness? It's a, like I mean, it's a difficult question and probably you don't have the time to talk about it completely, but here's, here's, here's my initial thoughts. I, I, look, I think that we probably don't gain too much from erasing our history, and I'm guided in this by, you know, uh, listening to voices who are more marginalised by this experience than I am. And I was, you know, uh, Briggs, you know, Adam Briggs, who a lot of people know is a comedian, rapper, he was talking about really... If Netflix want to make a statement, it's about commissioning more Indigenous programs and giving them opportunities rather than going back and erasing what has happened in the past. Because if we erase what's happened in the past, we can't learn why it's a good thing that we're different now. I don't feel like political correctness is, you know, killing comedy. I certainly, you know, there's things that I said previously that I wouldn't say now, but that's because comedy 
is at its best when it's reflective of our times, when it's commenting on the times, you know, in whatever sense that it might be commenting on the times. And so therefore, as the times change, then comedy should change. And of course, comedy is going to seem extremely outdated because it's commentary on times that have passed. So my gut instinct is that we should view it like that. You know, they, they've done it with movies. They put a little warning at the start, you know, yeah. this is from a different time and here are the themes that might be raised and here's fair warning. And in my opinion, then that's probably the best way to deal with it, which is recognise, yeah, I think it's great that we don't use those words anymore. I think it's great that we now know that it's inappropriate to do blackface. But I don't think that going back and erasing the fact that it ever happened is probably going to give us that journey and that understanding in the right way. And my second concern is that it's really taking away from what the real issue is. You know, this is off the back of the Black Lives Matters protest, but I feel like it distracts from them. I feel like, you know, there was no one on those Black Lives Matter protests who was asking for faulty towers to get cast. And then this becomes the story. And it becomes the thing that we debate about and we forget about what is really important. Now, to flip it, what excites you about the future of comedy? Uh, I mean, I, I think that it, it, in Australia, I will speak to, you know, first and foremost, because it's the, what I understand the most. This next generation of comedians is by far and away the most talented group of comedians Australia has ever produced. Now, part of it is just purely that there are a lot of people now doing comedy. But secondly, is I think that there was the initial wave and that, of course, had a certain, you know, uniformity to it, you know. You know, there was a period of time probably where the most well-known, you know, emerging stand-up names in Australia were, you know, Hughie, Adam Hills and myself. So, you know, like a lot of white sort of, you know, white middle-class men, you know, working-class middle-class men. And, um, you know, that is now no longer the case at, at all. You know, there is a broad dichotomy of the individual voices and styles of comedy, and particularly because of the access that they are able to watch YouTube, listen to podcasts, these sort of things you know, the outside influences that people have been doing this incredible work. So for me, this next generation of Australian comedy is the strongest generation of comedy that I've ever seen come through the Australian scene. Have you noticed any changes in your thinking during this time? In a very calculated sense, this has really shown me that, you know, you spend a lot of time, you know, letting Sky News or, you know, someone have an opinion about what it is that you do or what it is that you say. And people like to pretend that that's important, that Andrew Bolt's upset at you or whatever. Andrew Bolt's never bought a fucking ticket to my show. Andrew <laughs> Bolt's, sorry, I didn't mean to swear on your podcast. I really Andrew hope, Bolt. I really hope <laughs> that the next show, he's sitting right in the centre, just in your eye line, just looking directly at you. Well, you know well, what? I'm he, here. If he buys a ticket to the show, he has the absolutely right to, to complain about it. That, that is... Like, you know, once you've paid your money, you have... That's why I always say, if you get a free ticket to a show and you like the show, tell everyone. And if you didn't like the show, shut up, right? <laughs> you got a free ticket. But if you paid for your ticket, that's your right to say whether you liked it or didn't like it. You know, occasionally there are people who, you know, don't like what it is that um, I say in my shows. But if they bought a ticket, they have the right to express that opinion. <laughs> um, you know, they paid for it and they didn't like it for whatever reason. But if you haven't paid for it, then shush it and it's a bit like that with I guess I, I, I mean my gut instinct is that this will be an incredibly exciting uh, time for comedy I certainly feel from my personal point of view which I guess at the end of the day is all I can really speak about but I feel fired up 
I feel passionate. I feel there's a lot of issues in the world that suddenly are very vital for us to be talking about. And I think comedy is going to play a really exciting role in that when we're eventually allowed to do it again. Now, I don't think that'll be soon. Um, mm-hmm. I can't imagine I'll get back to doing the sort of shows that I do soon at all. We were the first out and we're going to be one of the last back in because, you know, it's not a good job for spreading a, a virus where it's spread, you know, through the mouth. You're getting a whole bunch of people in a room and you're trying to literally get them to laugh out loud, you know, expel saliva from their mouth in the direction of other people. So I think that it's still going to be a fair, even though things are starting to, you know, wind back up into some sort of normality, it's going to be a long time before I get to do my show again. And that idea of, you know, being passionate about having things to talk about, but also the audience having not um, had the capacity to see that for a while, I think we're both going to go back in with a greater appreciation of it. So I can't wait. I mean, I will wait, and I'm going to wait for as long as it is socially responsible. But when I get the opportunity to do it again, I think that that idea of treating every gig like it's your last, we suddenly felt what that felt like. You know, I've been staring down the barrel, you know, particularly when the pandemic started, of going, oh, was that last Sunday night in Adelaide in a tent at the Adelaide Fringe in the Garden? the last show I will ever do because what if comedy doesn't come back or what if, I mean, I'm 46 and I haven't exactly looked after myself. I could, I could, could, you know, I could topple over at any stage. I can't afford to have, you know, two years off doing stand-up, which is what they were talking about at some stage. I might never have done it again, you know, at that point. So, yeah, I think I'm excited. Without, you know, having any real sense of when and what that will be, I'm excited. Rapid Fire Questions. What's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? Uh, uh, so, um, I mean, I'm, okay, literally the first thing I do is let the dogs out. That's, that's, that is the, the dogs, if I'm up, the dogs are up. Uh, the sun will come through the window and so I'm up and the dogs are up, so they have to go outside. Then normally my partner gets up a bit later than I do, so normally then it's about I'll come down to my office not trying to make too much noise. The office is under the house, so I'll come down and do. I do most of my admin and catching up on the world in those earliest hours. So a cup of Sonali coffee out of my, you know, coffee machine, and then I'll sit in the office and I'll read all the newspapers and the websites and catch up on the news and do my admin, respond to some Patreon messages, all those sort of things. And that's that. Then normally by the time that I've done all that, she's up and about, and the the actual day starts. What is the book you recommend most to friends? Ah, that's a good question. What's the book I recommend most to people? Um, what is the book that I've passed on the most? Oh, there's a book called, um, uh, it's by Stuart Lee, the UK comedian Stuart Lee, How I Escaped My Uncertain Fate. My Anyway, if, you, if people Google Stuart Lee, they'd, they'd be able to, find what the title of the book is and um it's it's an incredible book about stand-up comedy i absolutely love it but there's uh i don't have any copies of it at the moment i used to have three and i've I've given them all out to different people and none of them have come back but he he goes through some shows and he annotates them but there's a lot of good insights into comedy and he talks about the idea and i I, this is a bit of advice that i pass on to comedians all the time which is he says all you really need is two thousand super fans we always talk about having 10,000 fans or 20,000 fans or 50,000 fans or wanting to have a million people watch what you do. But really, all you need to be a professional stand-up comedian, you know, well, you know, 
a successful stand-up comedian is 2,000 super fans. Because if you have 2,000 super fans, they will each pay $50 a year for your career. They'll go to a show, they'll buy a T-shirt, they'll often do more of than that, but they will at least do those things, you know. So you could rely on $50 a year from 2,000 people. And if you get $50 a year from 2,000 people, then that's $100,000 a year, right? Now, the math of that isn't, you know, I know I understand there's taxes and not everyone gets every money and blah, blah, blah. But as a as, a, as an example of how you build your audience, I think it's a really great example because we concentrate so much on, well, how do we get that next 50,000 people to like us? Or how do I be general enough that I can have like 200,000 people to like us? Where I think that what is really important is those 2,000 people, they love you. Like during the comedy festival, I would have people message me every night going, hey, um, we're just sending you a message tonight because this would have been our 15th year in a row seeing your show or this would have been our 20th year in a row seeing your show. And they'd send me the tickets and they'd get it. And I'm like, so this is somebody who's been, you know, coming to this hotel for their holiday every year for the last, you know, 12 years or 15 years. This is the person that, this is the thing that they do. When the comedy festival comes around, they go, I'm going to go and buy a ticket to Will's show. So that's those people, the 2,000 super fans. And they're the ones who care about you the most and they're the ones that you should care about the most. And then you try to turn that 2,000 into 3,000. But if you're turning that 2,000 into 3,000 by betraying the 2,000, you're doing it wrong. You just want more people who are like the 2,000, right? And so it's a great piece of advice, and I and I think about it all the time. And perhaps it was even something that we were talking about earlier in the in the show today, because you know it is that idea of the people who contribute to the Patreon, the people who've been there for me during this time. They're the ones I, I answer every message that I ever get on Patreon because these are people who are literally contributing to my livelihood and my career. And so if they've written me a message about the podcast and what it meant to them, I'm going to take the time to not only read it, but respond to it. Do you have a motto or mantra that you live by? I don't, but um, if I if I had to name one, it's probably, it's everyone's day at work. And what I mean by that is, I was told that by Ted Robinson when I was doing the glass house. And, um, you know, he's like, you're the star of the show, you're the host of the show. And so everybody's, you know, day is set up so that, you know, to make your day work properly. That's the nature of that. And he says, but remember, it's everyone's day at work. So how you behave today to the makeup artist, how you behave to the camera person, how you behave to the person who brings you your coffee, it's their day at work also. And so when they go home and they talk to their partner or their friends about their day at work, and whether it was good or bad, you have an opportunity to influence that by how you behave in those moments. So don't be fooled by the fact this is all set up as if you're the most important person here. It is everybody's day at work. And I think that it's everybody's day at work is the one that I think about a lot. And I think that when I'm at my worst, when I feel like I'm not, you know, being the person that I want to be in those sort of situations, it's because I'm not remembering, or at least I try to remind myself that it's everybody's day at work. Sometimes you you do feel too tired because you've just rewritten the monologue you know, minutes before the show is about to go to air and you're sitting in a makeup chair and, you know, the last thing that you really want to do is have a, have a friendly conversation with the makeup artist. But of course you have to, and you should, and it's important. Now, I've had the same person at the ABC now for 20 years and she knows when I've been busy and she just, she'll shush me and say, it's okay, shut your eyes, I'll just do this, which is also good. But you don't get to work with the same person for 20 years unless you give a shit about the person.
That's a beautiful way to end it. You've been incredibly generous uh, with your time. Enjoy the time on the farm and and uh, look forward to seeing your show when we're allowed to. Yeah, I hope so too, mate. Lovely to talk to you. I'll talk to you again soon, mate. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, tell your friends, and join me next time on The Pathway.